CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I'm not a doctor. I've seen a whole lot of catfish, some turtles. Uh, no gators yet, though. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview, is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, February 11th, 2021, as I like to do with bonus shows. I'll read the headline so you know if you're listening years from now what was in the news. And this one is particularly relevant to the conversation I'm about to have, the conversation I've been promoting all week. Uh, I'll read a couple of headlines from today's New York Times. Democrats trace Trump's mob's path in chilling detail. Terror of riot relived at trial as security footage is shared for the first time. Headline in today's New York Times about what uh, the footage that was played at uh, Donald Trump's impeachment trial uh, in the Senate. Uh, here's another headline. At core of trial is meaning of incitement. What is incitement? Uh, and then here's one that's uh, <laughs> uh, before the riot rage crackled on talk radio. Yes, indeed. The role everybody played uh, in firing up the mob and getting people to believe that an election was stolen when in fact it wasn't. Uh, and all the other events that led to the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, it's at this point, I'd like to bring on my guest. I, been uh, promoting his appearance all week. So guest, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hey, Ben. Uh, it's Jim Coogan, uh, Chicago trial attorney, attorney here at Dwyer and Coogan. And once in a while, we'll talk constitutional law and a lot more often than I ever could have imagined we talk impeachment on this show. Yes, this is our second go around, uh, Jim, of impeachment. First one didn't work out too well for those who wanted Donald Trump uh, convicted. I don't think this will result in a conviction either. And we'll get into the notion of senators as jurors in a little bit. Uh, but uh, let's talk about what's gone down so far as we speak. It's Thursday. The uh, Democrats have uh, concluded their argument uh, their argument in favor of conviction uh, in just the most general sense you could think of. What do you think they were trying to achieve and how close to achieving it do you think they came? So first of all, they, they had a very wide lens. They wanted to, I mean, first, before they actually started with their presentation, we had the procedural vote earlier in the week over the constitutionality of even proceeding with this. But once they had their allotted 16 hours to begin their presentation, um, the Democrat, the, the House Democrat managers wanted to demonstrate kind of the entire situation that they're dealing with here, that this was something that was attacking the fundamental tenets of democracy in this election, that it was a process that started before, way before January 6th, that it involved a pretty wide ranging uh, number of factors. You had the president inviting people, you had groups planning for this rally, uh, including the evidence that I think was new this week 
that initially that there was a plan for something to happen around the days following the actual inauguration, and then they jumped it up and moved it to the January 6th date, which demonstrates how deliberately this was intended to uh, interfere with or maybe even stop the certification process in Congress. So they, they gave you all of that, and they also tried to drive it home with very personal details and tried to make it very real, not just with video evidence, which is... I guess I'm kind of getting over how disturbing it is to watch, but maybe I'm not. It really does to me watching again this week. I had like a visceral reaction myself personally. And that's somebody who's a thousand miles away and watching on television or on the computer. Um, But that also was specifically directed towards the audience, which is senators who were in that building when this happened. And it won't be, whatever their vote, I think we both know what their vote's going to end up being, but that vote will not be a reflection of how grave the threat was or how serious and mortal the threat was to the actual human beings that are part of this process. So the house managers were trying to give you that entire scope, what the stakes were, how it got organized, why Donald Trump was responsible for it, why that was a violation of his oath of office and how close it came to the actual transition of power and interrupting it and to potentially harming or even killing members of Congress. Mm. And the vice vice president, right? Vice president, Mike Pence, they made that point. They drove that point out. In fact, they went so far as to call him a patriot, uh, Mike Pence. Uh, The Democrats did. Uh, They called him a patriot because he did not go along with Donald Trump's call to overturn the election. Never thought the day would come when Democrats would call Mike Pence a patriot, but uh, that's what they did. All right. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, the senators as jurors, because the Democrats are making this very compelling, very visceral case, as you pointed out, complete with live footage, uh, bringing back the horror of the scene. It's, if it's just imagine a 9-11, a trial related to 9-11, in which they showed the airplane going into the tower. And it's hard uh, to imagine any juror in a courtroom who's not just fixed on what they were showing because the gravity of the crime was uh, so uh, intense. They Just to show your respect f- for the people, the victims, you know, the people who paid a price, you were just going to pay attention, but also just because it is so compelling. In this case, the senators, Republican senators, have already made it clear that they're not going to vote for conviction, that their mind is made up. There's no, <laughs> there's not even a pretense of considering facts. They show images of them, uh, Jim, like on their phone, reading other briefing matters looking like they're not paying attention. Talk a little bit about like the difference between real live jurors that you've dealt with many times because you're a, a trial lawyer and the senators who are behaving nothing resembling a real live juror. Go ahead. Yeah, if, if the Republican senators that were demonstrating their open disdain for the process pulled something like that, on a Cook County jury or anywhere in Illinois or anywhere in this country, uh, the judge wouldn't be having it. They might get dismissed from service. They certainly would get reprimanded and they'd be on a short leash to pay attention, wake up, put down the book, all those things. Uh, I mean, 
few real jurors would have the temerity to, to just start openly reading something else in court. Although I have seen them doze off once in a while. Um, <laughs> never during my own presentation, by the way. But, okay. um, but yeah, I mean, so you have to start with from square one, which is it's a trial in front of 100 senators. You don't select for which senators are going to hear the case. There's no process for that. It's not a criminal or a civil trial in the traditional sense. It has some similarities procedurally, but we also know that it doesn't have any jeopardy that attaches to a criminal case, nor does it have the potential to cost Donald Trump any money. There's no, there's not going to be a civil judgment against him either. Um, but there is no disqualification process. There's nobody, there's no process to decide whether you can or can't sit on this jury, whether you're too biased to sit on this jury. Um, bias is kind of presumed. It is inherently a political process. I mean, the, we've heard some historical references this week. We've heard references in the Federalist Papers. We've heard some contextual references to try to explain what the founders were thinking when they put the impeachment process into the Constitution. And that does matter. And it's also relevant to answer your question. Um, ultimately, this was, and actually, Jamie Raskin made this point this afternoon when he was wrapping up the last part of their conclusion, which I think was poignant. The Constitution has the po- gives the power to the House of Representatives exclusively to impeach the president does not give the president the power to impeach anyone from Congress or the Supreme Court. It's an interesting point. I mean, it was, it demonstrates the way, the mechanisms by which the founders intended to balance power and create checks and balances, our, our favorite phrase when we talk civics. So, you know, the second part of that is that that trial, if there is an impeachment, happens in front of these senators. So obviously, whether they already have their mind made up whether they're complete. And I mean, honestly, with with what happened here for a lot of reasons that are anything besides Trump, I don't know why they would be so impenetrable and immune to the real dangers that this presents, not just to democracy, but to their own lives. Uh, But we can talk about the political reasons why that's the case if you want. Um, Nevertheless, with this group, that's what you were going to see. You already knew that, Rand Paul pushed for that, I think, improper constitutional vote uh, a couple of weeks ago just to prove the point that he, you know, he didn't think that this was constitutional, didn't think they should have a trial, didn't think they could. Virtually no constitutional scholars agree with that position, but that was just sort of the opening salvo to demonstrate their disdain for whatever the House was going to do, maybe even try to talk them out of doing it. Um, they're still doing that, of course. There's all this finger wagging and talk about unity and how Democrats are using this for political gain and it has nothing to do with the merits and it isn't really about protecting the Constitution. I don't agree with any of that, but those are the points that they're continuing to try to make. So almost the same number of Republican senators lined up when they had the vote on whether it was even constitutional to hold an impeachment trial for a, a, an official that was no longer in the office. Every other historical precedent says that it absolutely is constitutional. They gave examples, and it really isn't questioned except for political reasons. And so that's why, what is it, 44 of the the senators all voted that they didn't even think this was constitutional had this trial, even though they really have no support for that other than just their opinion. 
By the way, before we get into the specifics of the uh, of the trial and the and the the arguments that the uh, Republicans will be making to counter, let's just talk about that. Like having already voted that the trial is unconstitutional. I, I don't know. Can you like? <laughs> I'm just thinking about it. Can you then, therefore, then vote for conviction? You know what I'm saying? It's. I mean, you're certainly not going to as a practical matter. Yeah. It demonstrates that they won't, nothing about the arguments is going to change their position. I mean, I guess it's always, who knows? You know, there's a possibility. But yeah, um, again, un- unlike a regular jury, they don't, you don't sit there and ask the jurors if they think that uh, the criminal, <laughs> the, the accused defendant should be held to the criminal liability under Illinois law, whether murder is a constitutional stat. They don't have them vote on that. That's not how any of that works. All right. So one of the main objectives of the uh, the Democratic managers, as they call him, Jimmy Raskin and his uh, allies, was to establish a direct connection between Donald Trump's actions at the January 6th speech and even before that. And then the behavior, the reaction of the MAGA mob. Uh, that's what impeachment is all about. There's to be criminal pr- proceedings where the MAGA mob are held accountable for having uh, invaded the Capitol. But this is holding this is an attempt to hold Donald Trump accountable for his uh, behavior on January 6th. How successful, in your humble opinion, were Jamie Raskin and his allies in connecting Donald Trump to the riot, to the insurrection? If this were a. RICO trial or some kind of conspiracy trial, and you were trying to tie like a, like a mob boss to a bunch of actions that were taken by his underlings, I think that they would, I don't think there'd be any, any question about conviction. I think you would have a couple of hours of deliberation, the jury would come back and they would say guilty because they laid out the election happened in the immediate post-election time, actually, you know what? It even went before that. They, they, they even laid out the context that we all watched throughout the 2020 election season where Donald Trump, just because he's always trying to create an excuse for something that might go wrong for him, continuously called it a rigged election before it even happened, <laughs> which, uh, you know, how could he know exactly what's going to happen in the future? But I think it did dawn on him that he was going to lose. So, although he did the same thing in 2016, just in case. I mean, the point is he was already creating the false narrative that anything that happened that didn't go his way must be the result of somebody else cheating. So once it was clear that he was going to lose, once Fox called Arizona, he came out and had his unhinged mid three o'clock in the morning or whatever time it was press conference declaring victory. uh, And that line just continued for the next two and a half months declaring victory, accusing all sorts of different actors of fraud, basically anybody who wouldn't go along with the lie, declaring that stop the steal was now the the big phrase. You know, it's a nice one, two, three repeatable phrase for a crowd to chant. And then starting to invite people to come to Washington on January 6th for no real reason. I mean, there's there's nothing that he can do. The president doesn't have any power at that point. Congress has a job to do. There's no election going on. What else is the purpose of this rally? It it's, it's, could only be for the purpose of trying to create some kind of false impression or intimidate someone, presumably Congress, 
from from not doing their, in, to not do their job. So they tied all that context together and all that background. So in other words, it's not just about what he said that day. It's very convenient for a Lindsey Graham or another a Josh Hawley or whoever it is on Fox to just dismiss what Trump said and say, he can't be responsible for whatever the crowd did. He just said some words. He didn't just say some words. A wide-ranging effort to try to bring as many people together at one time and create the impression that whatever they were there for, it was going to be big, wild, possibly dangerous. He knows that people like to, he like, he knows that lots of his fans like to show up armed or at least wearing body armor to public events. So they gathered all these people and then he uses language followed by other speakers. He's got his son out there screaming about how they have to fight. He's got Rudy Giuliani talking about trial by combat, which that just, it just sounds like a crazy person or somebody who's way too wrapped up in middle age history or something. And then Trump puts the icing on the cake or lets the fuse, so to speak, and talks about fighting giving weak senators or, or weak Congress people and senators a reason to fight. You know, we don't have to worry about the strong ones, but the weak ones might need a little encouragement. You know, these are classic inciting, inciting words that to use, you know, to repeat the example from like a mob boss who doesn't want to actually say, you know, go kill this guy, uh, you know, go pay him a visit. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe we have to do something to get him to see it our way coded language. Trump's been talking like that for not just the last four years, at least for the last 10, 15 years in public life. Like this is, it's a persona that I think he enjoys because mm-hmm. he likes to look tough, but it's also a way to really actually do things, to actually get things done, to actually get people to carry some of this stuff out. And we've heard it. His own personal lawyer, Michael Cohen said, this is his method of communication. So it's not a secret and it's not, it's not just Jim Coogan you know, trial lawyer from Chicago trying to interpret this or Ben Jarofsky interpreting this, his guy said it under oath in front of Congress. Yeah, uh, Michael Cole, he laid it out there uh, a lot of clear. And he also said, uh, if you get in bed with Trump, oh, bad things are going to happen to you. He warned him. Uh, no one listened to Michael Cohen. All right. Uh, let's get some of the uh, assertions that Trump supporters have made in his defense out here. Get your thoughts on them. I, um, I was just reading uh, a New York Times story before we went on the air. The New York Times was interviewing people throughout the country, what they thought about the impeachment so far. And uh, pretty much whenever they uh, quoted a, uh, a Trump supporter, uh, this would come out of their mouth. He's got a First Amendment right to say what he wants. Uh, I've never seen so many defenders of the First Amendment. Where were any of these guys during the 50s uh, when McCarthy was going after alleged communists and their First Amendment right? Where are any of these guys right now defending Mark Cuban's right not to play the national anthem at Dallas Maverick games? Uh, But uh, anyway, when it comes to Donald Trump, they're all First Amendment scholars and purists. Uh, your thoughts on the First Amendment and how it applies to what Donald Trump did on January 6th? Well, yeah, I mean, look, I, I have these conversations with friends, and uh, the First Amendment, it, it's there are a few things in American jurisprudence that are more important but more poorly understood than the First Amendment. It, it is clearly an extremely important aspect of our constitutional democracy and of this Republic. You know, you had the constitution, 
And then they decided they needed to enact these individual rights protections. And it's the first one that is intended to send a signal because its job is to say that the government cannot prosecute you for speech. However, that is not an unlimited proposition for obvious reasons. There are all kinds of speech that we don't allow to be, that you, we don't allow you to assert that you could say this with impunity just because there is a First Amendment protection and just because there is a right to free speech. Free speech doesn't mean you get to say whatever you want. Separate and apart from your question, it also doesn't mean that people can't criticize you for saying stupid, ignorant, mean, terrible, uninformed things. <laughs> so that's that's a frustration I have with this idea that well, what about cancel culture? And I get to say whatever I want. Well, people don't have to like it. I mean, that's the whole point. You do it in the marketplace of ideas, sometimes you get rejected. But as far as what Trump said, and as far as his right to free speech here, things that you say to incite violent acts are not protected by the First Amendment. One of the, the, the presentation from the house managers included references to the Brandenburg test. So there's, a, there's an old case from the late 1960s from Ohio where a guy named Brandenburg said some awful things, uh, KKK rally guy or, you know, grand wizard or whatever he was. Um, and the question was whether or not what he said, because it was not directly attached to acts that the crowd was going to carry out could be silenced by, um, some Ohio law that, that said you can't say this kind of thing. So, in taking that case up, the Supreme Court created this new test and tried to clarify exactly what would constitute something that's not protected by a freedom of speech in a First Amendment defense if you said something to a crowd. And essentially, it's whether there is an imminent risk that that's going to create some kind of harm to someone or some kind of damage or something that's going to happen imminently. So there's a time, there's a timescape, uh, a time scope question that's been put into the law and is part of, you know, bedrock American jurisprudence when it comes to this kind of thing. So the way that the house managers laid this case out was when Trump is standing there giving this speech, it's not just in a vacuum. It's in the context of two months of screaming and yelling about theft and fraud and the rules don't apply. The rules are different when people do a fraud and this election was stolen from us and from you and from our country and all of this background is, is the, as they described, it's sort of this powder keg. You've got that background, angry, agitated people in a crowd, and crowds act differently. That's what, I mean, that's, that's one thing that we know to be true. That's why incitement of acts of a group of people, they can turn into a mob. It's just a human thing that we have to deal with. And then you spark that by giving them this, instruction. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. And of course he lies and says, I'm going to be there right with you. That's not protected by the first amendment. You can't just say whatever you want. And I, I have to give, I mentioned uh, Maryland uh, representative Jamie Raskin once already. I have to give him credit. I really liked another analogy that he put together today. This is not just somebody yelling fire in a crowded theater, which again would be another thing that is not protected by the first amendment. You can't, you know, have a crowded feeder of people yell fire, cause them all to be into a panic. You know, when there's no fire, you're lying about it. Okay. Cause them to be in a panic. People are injured. Things are torn down. Maybe the fire really does start. And then just say, well, I can say whatever I want. It's the first amendment. That's not how it works. 
But his analogy was was more illustrative here. It's not just doing that. <clears throat> it's more like the fire marshal directs some kind of fire to be started and then decides yeah. <laughs> to withhold and actually prevent the fire fighters from actually going to the scene and doing their job and putting this fire out for an inexplicable period of time. That that's that kind of adds more weight to that analogy. And it's a great analogy. I mean, I I've had this argument with friends too. I don't think conservatives do analogies well, but Jamie Raskin does. Um, <laughs> it's 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 a really great one because it reflects the power that he also had over the situation, which whether he fully understood or not, I never really know for sure, but he probably assumed that whatever did happen, because I don't know if he really had a plan here. I don't know if he thought that these folks would actually go start some kind of murderous riot or whether it would actually stop the certification process. I don't think he knows. I think he kind of, you know, shakes up the snow globe and just sees where everything falls down. But being the president, as he knew he still would be for two more weeks, I think he knew that he could just stand down and maybe that would screw this up more and that would allow the the riot to fester longer than it otherwise might have. Um, even if he wasn't fully briefed on the the like authority of, of the Metro Police and the authority of the Capitol Police and whoever, the, the D.C. National Guard, either way, I'm sure he figured he could mess with it in some fashion just by doing nothing, which is apparently what he did. Yeah, and I I, I think Jamie, Jamie Raskin did a great job uh, with that analogy. I remember that. And, and I'll just repeat, uh, if you have a selective endorsement of the First Amendment that varies uh, according to whether you support the person who's uh, hiding behind the First Amendment or claiming the First Amendment, then you don't believe in the First Amendment at all. You either believe in the First Amendment, uh, when I say the First Amendment, you either believe in free speech, being totally free, unprotected in any way, you know what I'm saying? Uh, or you don't, to a certain degree. I mean, uh, when it comes to Trump, it seems like anything goes with the Republican Party. And absolutely anything goes because it's got a First Amendment right to it. You know what I'm saying? And they quickly abandon that First Amendment principle. I think I said this to you before we began the show. It's really hard to have a principle argument with somebody who really has no principles. Uh, and um, I admit it's a very complicated thing, the First Amendment, the notion of how much freedom we have uh, to say whatever we want. If uh, We're going to get into it. The, paying, you know, being accountable for what you say in terms of damaging someone's reputation. We're going to get into that uh, and the, the notion of addressing some of these things uh, in the law in a lawsuit. But clearly when I'm, I'm looking at the reaction of Republicans, Jim, they're just like they turn like a stone heart. You know, they'd be like they don't care what they see. It's almost as though the, the anguish of the cop who's getting squeezed by that door, you know, that that. You can hear the the sight of the the, uh, the the MAGA guy with the hockey stick whacking a cop over the head with. I mean, that one always sticks in my mind. For like, he brought a hockey stick to the. I mean, what? He yeah. brought a hockey stick to the. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Their 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 hearts are hardened. So, um, I just think that for, I'm with you. The First Amendment is opposed. Uh, the Definition of incitement. That's the headline. A core of trial is the meaning of incitement. 
that was the headline in the New York Times. Talk about that. Like, what is the definition of incitement or what is the meaning of incitement? Well, the simplest way to look at it is it is the use of speech to convince, persuade, maybe even threaten someone else to do something, something illegal. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a question of criminal intent or, or criminal outcome or something like that. Um, it's, and that's why Brandenburg tried to tighten it down and say, we're not going to criminalize all speech that is trying to convince someone else to do something. But then, you know, incitement could give way to conspiracy, you know, just because, so if you're going to charge somebody with incitement, let's look at the criminal context. If if you're charging someone with a, a statute that criminalizes an incitement of someone else to go burn down a building, you'd need to prove that it happened in that timely fashion, that it was close enough in time and therefore constitutes incitement, that you tricked them into it, that you riled them into it, whatever you use, but some kind of, some kind of words that came out of your mouth to persuade them and convince them to do the act instead of you doing the act. Or maybe you could go along with them, but they also did it. But a conspiracy could be something where you, you didn't have that time element. It wasn't as uh, connected in terms of the, the, the temporality, but you still convince them or trick them into it or threaten them into it. And they just did it later. So incitement is kind of tightened down to something that happens in a short temporal span. Um, and that's why it often is, is associated with, with riots and with crowds because you have these um, in, inflammable situations where people are around, there's a buzz, there's and the stuff that nobody remembers. It's been a year now since any of us have been in a real crowd like that, but it's just different when you're in a group of a large group of people. There's a different energy. You know, there's there's faces that you don't recognize, even if you know everybody there. Things move kind of quickly, and so there's kind of that's why there's this this defin- this human definition of what incitement is because it's unique to that kind of a situation. It could apply to just one person depending on the situation, but oftentimes there's going to be some, some level of pressure that's brought to bear and the speaker, the inciter is pushing on whatever that pressure point is. Hatred against a group, anger about a thing that you've, you've worked them into a lather about whatever it is, that's your incitement. Well, I, uh, Ultimately, I think uh, all these definitions, like what it was First Amendment protection incitement, will go out the window. Uh, ultimately, it's it's going to be a political, it is a political trial. And uh, what we haven't seen yet is the Republican defense. And my guess is, uh, Jim, and I'm, I'm predicting this based on things they've said, their lawyers have said already or said on TV, is they're going to make the Democrats look like a mob, I got that in quotes, uh, who are just so irrationally obsessed with destroying Donald Trump that they're trying to impeach a man who's no longer holding office. Uh, I believe essentially that will be the gist of their case because they can't defend anything he did. They can't say, you know, well, that was uh, like, they're they're backing away from the assertions that 
the election was stolen. They're not going to say, oh, it was just normal speech. Uh, they're not going to say a crime wasn't committed. They're not going to say the crime uh, didn't happen the same day, like within minutes of Donald Trump giving the speech. They're going to say, oh, what does it matter anyway? He's not in office uh, and it's unconstitutional. They're going to go back to that. What's your thought of that as a defense? Well, basically all the defenses of Trump, they always have to go around the point or beside the point. He can only be defended on procedural grounds or, you know, like even if you're talking to your neighbor and and you're asking him, what's the deal, man? How how can you wear that red hat? He's going to say, well, my taxes are lower. It's not about something that some virtue that Trump possesses because he doesn't have any virtue. And he doesn't hide that fact and he doesn't care. Um, so everything around him, any defense of him, whether it's a legal defense, a political defense, or just, just a practical, how can you associate yourself with this guy defense? It's always going to be about something else. So here, very naturally, they started with a procedural constitutional defense, objecting to the nation, the, the notion of even doing this, whether it's possible to do, you know, you have that perfect sweet spot of Mitch McConnell, uh, deflecting, the process and, and, and avoiding starting an impeachment trial in the Senate while he was still president saying, you can't do it now. And then afterwards voting against whether it was constitutional to do it afterwards, <laughs> which again, he knows, look, it's not like anybody had ever heard of William Blunt. If you're not a constitutional scholar before this or William Belknap, these are guys who the, the, the past cases that affirmed the notion precedent that the Senate can have these trials that, uh, even though one didn't happen for Blunt, that was a guy from like 1790, but they actually affirmatively put in the record that it, he didn't get tried, not because he left office, but for other reasons. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they absolutely can have these trials for people who left the office, but that doesn't matter. They're always looking for something else to defend about, something else to deflect about, something else to uh, to distract from. And, and don't forget, you're asking about you know who they're appealing to and what the plan is here. Eight senators and 139 House members still voted to block certification on January 6th, even after this mob blasted through the Capitol, led to the death of of one officer, and then we found out that more uh, cascaded later. I mean, they did that that night, in the middle of the night. They were still objecting to this. And... I don't think it had anything to do with the merits. I think we all know that. Uh, Maybe it's possible that some of these House members actually believe that that in spite of there not being any evidence that it was actually stolen. Um, So it it just never has anything to do with it, with whatever's actually going on. And the defense is never square to whatever you're accusing Trump of. It has to go in some other direction. Um, And I guess we can, I don't know if you, we haven't seen it yet, but we can talk a little bit about what we might expect beyond what we just said from, from Trump's counsel. I mean, in this case, he doesn't even have the group of lawyers who he had in the first impeachment trial. They all refused to participate. His first group that he'd hired quit a week in advance of the trial, which is never a good sign. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, at the end of the day, the only reasons, I've, you know, you hear this stuff, the only reason why you would quit under those circumstances, and I can attest to this if I was in that situation, your client is lying to you. 
or your client is insisting that you lie on their behalf. Or you just can't, you know, you're saying, here's your defense strategy, and they, and they just won't agree to it. Well, eventually, you just walk away. You can't go out there. And ultimately, you are risking your license. I, I mean, I still think lawyers who filed some of these actions in objection to the certification and of, of Biden winning in swing states might have their licenses examined in different ways because some of these filings just put forth, forth false information. You can't do that. Yeah. Lawyers have an, have an oath as an officer of, of the courts that they um, try cases in and that they represent people in. They're officers of the court. So, you know, the rest of this defense, I'm sure, ironically, or just to get to the, to, to the point, even at the conclusion of the House's case today, they anticipatorily mentioned, okay, we've already established the constitutionality of this trial, so let's not waste any time when you do your defense still talking about whether it's possible to hold this, this proceeding. I don't actually know that they'll do that. I think it may actually get very abbreviated. These guys were talking the other day, and neither of them seemed to have anything to say for whatever time they were up there. I don't think either of them really made any substantive point. I'm not sure why they're even really there, but um, I, so I think it might actually be very short. Is is what I'm if I'm going to predict anything, that could be the case. I, I I'm with you. I, I don't know why they even he look. He already has the votes he needs for acquittal. Exactly. I don't know why they put up defense anyway to go. Sure. You know they, they you already had Josh Hawley going through other briefing papers, looking at his phone while they're presenting evidence. They're not paying it to, they're showing their utter contempt, the uh, Republican voters to the process. I don't even know why. Why waste our, anybody's time that, uh, I think his name is Castor. It was such a horrifically bad performance. I could have done as well. And I've never been, I've never went a day in law school. Jim Cook. I could have got it. I know the difference between a prosecutor and a defense lawyer. I do know that. Okay. Which, Puts me ahead of uh, Castor, I think his name is. It's true. Right. Yeah. I What's, I, uh, let's close with this. Uh, we've talked about this many times in relation to um, uh, gun manufacturers, that if they were uh, liable for the carnage uh, that their product caused, uh, maybe they would take greater steps to prevent people, widespread ownership of guns and bullets, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, so, but of course, they're immu- uh, they have immunity to this by federal law. Uh, we're now seeing, in a similar vein, politicians pay a price. I'm thinking of Rudy Giuliani and uh, Fox TV uh, for just broadcasting. Uh, any old thing that Donald Trump wants them to broadcast without regard for whether it's truth or factual. Uh, do you think that this is a sign of what's to come as uh, lawyers like yourself uh, sees, take the initiative, go to court uh, to prevent politicians from just making any old kind of assertion that they want to make, no matter how erroneous, made up, fictitious it may be? Um, well, so this this highlights another thing where another aspect of speech that is not just automatically protected by the First Amendment. And I, I'll admit, I was listening to a podcast about the lawsuit that's been filed against or by Smartmatic, which is 
not Dominion. It's, it's, it had a much smaller role in the 2020 election. And actually, it's not like they were a really great case because they only had a contract with L.A. County. Yeah. So their software wasn't being used anywhere else. And yet their name's coming out of the mouths of Rudy Giuliani and other Fox people as somehow related to Pennsylvania, to Georgia, to Arizona, where they don't even have technology that's not even being used there. So, I mean, yeah, one of my thoughts was, how do I get involved in this case? I'd like to get on the this case because it sounds like a great case. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, look, it's it's not it, it's not ideal from a social communication journalism standpoint to have I guess the only remaining way of regulating how this discourse occurs is through the courts. That's that is not how you'd like this to go. You'd rather have journalistic standards. You'd rather the host tell a guest you can't say that on here or just cut the segment short or something like that. I mean, before the show, we had a little discussion about this. Uh, I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny, but it is funny. Uh, this, this sequence of events. Uh, so there's, th- you know, three principal conservative networks. Now you've got Fox. And for those, of, for those people who Fox is too liberal, they can tune into Newsmax or OANN, the one America news network. Both of those last two have gone very hard after the mega Trump crowd in the last couple of years. So one particular instance where there does seem to be some traction for the legal effect and what happens to you if you say these things or you peddle this kind of stuff on your network. Um, the MyPillow guy, who's a, a huge supporter of President Trump, former President Trump, um, has been going around and I think even aired some sort of documentary either on OANN or on Newsmax. And he was going around a couple of weeks ago, promoting this thing, talking about how he's got all this proof of how the election was stolen. Well, they had him on Newsmax. They wanted ostensibly it was to talk about cancel culture because that's kind of low hanging fruit. You know, you're just, they're just vague assertions. Nobody's going to sue you for that. And it's easy to trigger their viewers about getting all angry and riled up about cultural issues so that's why he was on there. In theory, he decided that he was on there to talk about how he's got all this proof. Immediately, one of the two hosts starts just talking over him, just laughing <laughs> <laughs> right through what he's saying to try to drown out the noise. And then he picks up a piece of paper, starts to read a disclaimer, how the Newsmax has not verified any of this. As far as they know, the election results have been certified, and that's the, that, those are the facts, that's the situation. Finally, because Lindell wouldn't stop talking, he just walks out of his seat. <laughs> you can see a three, a three panel thing, a middle panel, and all of a sudden there's just an empty chair. He, walk, he gets out, like, "Don't sue me! I walked off the set." <laughs> but your question is about, you know, what is this? What is this broader thing that's happening at this point in time? Uh, you're seeing, but I think what one dynamic that's happening here is Donald Trump has lied so pervasively, so many times about so many things seemingly without any uh, repercussions. So the people in his orbit, I think, have kind of like there's this, just something in the water where they think they can try to get away with all the same things that he does. And I'm not sure he'll get away with all this either. I don't, I think that time may have passed now that he's no longer the president. Important side point. But as far as Giuliani, who is the defendant in one of these cases, Fox News is the defendant in one of these cases. Dominion is the other they're actually in more of these places, but they were still, in their opinion, 
uh, slandered or, or libel was committed against them by talking about them being part of some cabal or by or that they're manipulating results or that their software is uh, subject to that kind of manipulation. They're suing these people. So there, there may be repercussions, big repercussions, because if they're, I mean, the, the damages are be calculated at the end of these cases. You see a $2.7 billion lawsuit doesn't necessarily mean that's the amount that's at stake because they'd have to prove the business losses on the other end. On the other hand, in the meantime, you know, these are individuals, unless they carry some kind of liability protection for that, does that mean Rudy's got to defend this case himself? He I don't think that's going to work. Yeah. Uh, is he going to hire lawyers? Is he going to spend $50,000, $100,000, $200,000 defending this case? I mean, those are real impacts. Mm-hmm. I, and again, I, don't, I think the chilling effect that that can have on journalistic speech, on investigative journalism is a concern. But yeah. in this case, these are just lies. Yeah. You know, especially if Rudy's the one saying Smartmatic is manipulating results in Pennsylvania where they literally aren't there, that's an easy one. You know, that's not, it's not a subjective question. It's not a gray area of whether he's, you know, offering a legitimate opinion or he's entitled to his opinion. So uh, if anything, as much as I don't love it, it is, it is something that's important that speech isn't boundless. And, you know, when you're going to peddle nonsense and ultimately we saw that it's damaging, you know, it's not just that, that some of these officers even committed suicide after this event. They all had to endure this. Yeah. The ones you won't even hear about. Uh, you know, one of them lost part of his finger. Well, that's okay. Oh, big deal. It's a finger. Oh, that's a pretty big deal. They, yeah. These men and women who do, do a pretty thankless job that's boring 90% of the time were attacked as if it was like a foreign outpost. I mean, how long did we spend anguishing over Benghazi? Yeah. More people died as a result of this insurrection and this attempt to undermine our democracy than died over there. You know what? All of them were meaningful. Yeah. But the question of who's responsible and what we have to do about it has gotten, in both cases, was so muddled and so confused by, in my opinion, right-wing political interests that it's kind of disgusting. And, and at least when you're going to lie about this stuff, I'd, I'd rather there be some repercussions as opposed to it just being free reign and they could say whatever they want and the damage just lingers and, per, and, and reverberates for, you know, who knows how many other different ways. Yeah. Uh, I think that's as good a spot as ever uh, to leave this particular discussion, but the Benghazi thing really brought it home again. I'll repeat uh, the behavior of the Republicans are outraged over Benghazi and their utter indifference to what went down at the Capitol just shows, uh, underscores what I said. It's hard to have a principle to debate or discussion with people who have no principles and are just uh, making it up as they go along. Uh, Jim Coogan, thanks so much. And I uh, appreciate you coming on the show and uh, talking impeachment. We'll probably bring you on next uh, about two, three weeks to talk about to sort of wrap it all up and have another conversation on this one. Uh, so I'm uh, looking forward to that. All right, Jim. Yeah. Do you still want to do the other thing? Or? Oh, Dennis, where are you young man? There he is. Uh, yes. Forgot all about that. I don't oh, know if we're going to take all that. this part out of the interview, but why not? Either way. Forgot I didn't uh, have my camera on. Sorry about that. Uh, so, uh, Dennis, you take the lead on this. All right, Jim. Well, our uh, anniversary show is coming up uh, February 27th. 
The Ben Jarofsky Show will be a podcast, uh, our two-year anniversary, all right? We're so long, radio days. Uh, so what, what I've been having guests do is uh, kind of give us a shout-out, like, you know, uh, that you hear on the radio. You know, like, hey, this is uh, George Foreman, and you're listening to The Ben Jarofsky Show. So if you could, like, you know, hey, this is Jim Coogan. Uh, you know, want to wish the Ben Jarofsky show a happy two year anniversary, something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, radio is so 2018. So <laughs> that's what we've been saying. It's so December, 2018. That's what we've been saying. I'll give you a countdown. And then after that, just go ahead and, uh, you know, let it rip. All right. Yep. Cool. Here we go. All right. Three, two, one. Uh, this is Jim Coogan, Chicago trial lawyer, wishing Ben Jarofsky and Dennis a uh, happy second anniversary of the Ben Jarofsky show, the podcast, uh, to two of the most legal and law-abiding guys that I know. So <laughs> congratulations. Keep it going. We are definitely that way now that uh, marijuana is legal. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Jim Coogan. I really appreciate that. That's the great Jim Coogan. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.